Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump is threatening to close the border with Mexico. He made the demand that Mexico stop what he called all illegal immigration coming to the United States through our southern border. Let's reflect on what an effective U.S. policy would be with Central America with Matt Ginsburg-Jakel. He's an interpreter, community organizer, and he works with the Chicago-based human rights group La Voz de los de Abajo that works on issues involved with Honduras. Thanks a lot for joining us, Matt. Thank you, Jerome. It's good to be here. Uh, could you explain, there's been some developments on security funding for uh, Honduras and Central American countries. What just happened? So there was an agreement signed between the U.S. State Department or U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the governments, uh, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, um, around police cooperation, and it's under the pretense that the U.S. is supposedly going to be assisting with um, further developing the Honduran police forces to stem crime and drug trafficking and try to stop the outflow of migration from that country. Of course, it really represents just a beefing up and a continuation of, ironically, the exact policies uh, that have led to migration in the first place, which is to say continued funding for the security forces of a corrupt and undemocratic and illegitimate regime that has been brutally repressing its own people and forcing them to flee while deteriorating the security uh, conditions in the country because of its active corruption and collaboration with drug traffickers. I was just reading a story yesterday in the Associated Press about uh, Honduran police breaking down the door of a radio station and arresting a journalist who's a critic of President Juan Orlando Hernandez. And uh, they, they, he was uh, holed up in the radio station. He's got a 10-year prison sentence. And uh, he said as they were arresting him and was being forced into a police vehicle, I know they can kill me. And if that happens, the person responsible is the president. Just a, a little example of the repression that goes on in Honduras. That's right. In their press conferences and their big shows and the international media releases, they like to make it sound like they are financing the police to go find drug traffickers, etc. When the reality of the situation is that the police are, as you just mentioned, breaking down the doors of journalists who are critical of the regime and using excessive force in order to carry out political agendas. And meanwhile, who are the drug traffickers? Well, one of them's locked up in Miami. He's the president of the current, uh, he's the brother of the current president of Honduras, and he is the number one uh, drug kingpin in Honduras for shipment of cocaine to the United States. So we are literally funding the criminals in order to persecute the people that are fighting for change at the root causes. You know, it's kind of hard to understand all the U.S. aid that um, goes to Central America and how it breaks down. Um, but P President Trump uh, seems to look at it as we are not getting our money's worth. It's a bad deal. Um, we should stop, just stop everything. We should, yeah. Do you agree with that in some way? I mean, if we've, if we've got, a, if we've got a, a corrupt regime there and we should stop security service funding, do you kind of agree with President Trump? So th there's two different things here. So on the same day that this deal was announced, a step that would be in the correct direction uh, was also announced by opposition members within the U.S. Congress. Representative Hank Johnson and about 40 other congresspeople introduced what's called the Berta Cáceres Bill for Human Rights in Honduras. And what that says is we should cut off all police and military aid. We should not be funding these criminal organizations that happen to call themselves a government at the moment. 
to persecute their own people and that until there's an end to impunity and human rights violations, that aid should stop. Now, that is not what President Trump is doing. And I don't listen to what he says. I listen to what he does. What he is doing is continuing to release multi-million dollar aid packages to those very same security forces. So while he might say, oh, we're not getting our money's worth, we should cut it off, in, in fact, uh, what, I, what I see happening is actually a beefing up and a continuity of the policies of both Democrat and Republican regimes that have continued to be friendly to the post-coup, undemocratic, repressive governments in Honduras. Now, there's um, a certain amount of money, uh, $627 million, that Congress al- allocated for Central America a year ago. And uh, a lot of Democrats uh, argue that it's money well spent and that we should do it. And, and, it pro- and the program pays for funding and training of prosecutors, judges, uh, law enforcement personnel trying to build a, a, a functioning justice system. Is that, um, is that funding worth it? Is that uh, money well spent? You know, we have plenty of history, recent and further back, to look at to see resoundingly that no, it is not. Every time we go to Congress, and again, to Democrats and to Republicans within Congress, and we say, you need to stop enabling a corrupt and repressive regime, they say, oh, if we just give a little bit of extra training, a little bit extra money, it's going to somehow uh, lead to improvements. And and then what we what do we see in the aftermath? We see uh, if you want to talk about f- funding for prosecutors. Well, it was the prosecutor's office that leaked and lost the case file in the assassination case of the most prominent activist in Honduras, Berta Cáceres. You want to talk about the police funding? Well, it was the police that were found to have direct links to drug traffickers, um, and it was the police who assassinated one of their own uh, members who was on was a drug czar in Honduras. You say it wants to go to strengthening the armed forces to stop drug trafficking. Well, it was the armed forces that broke down uh, the doors, uh, or or people linked to the armed forces that broke down the doors to Berta's house and assassinated her. At what point are we going to say, you know what, we're actually not stopping, we're enabling. And I also don't think that it's not intentional, to be quite honest. I don't want to sound cynical, but we have uh, corporate interests in Honduras that benefit from the uh, deal with the devil that's been made there. You know, where what we get in exchange, what the U.S. corporate class gets in exchange uh, for the kind of hard-lined regime in Honduras is protection for its sweatshops along the border, protection for its continued extractive projects, whether they're mining operations or major mega projects and dams. And they also get a political ally. You see Honduras was the first one to jump to the stage and say, oh, we'll move our embassy to Jerusalem too. Honduras was the first one to say, oh, you're welcome to use our bases if you want to invade uh, Venezuela, ironically, right? This for Honduras of all countries to be talking about democracy in the region. Um, so it's it's really frustrating and unnerving. I will say, though, that it is hopeful that there is a growing body of opposition within Congress, the likes of Ilhan Omar, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and, of course, Representative Hank Johnson, who are really looking to double down the fight to say, you know what, if we're concerned about budgets, if we're concerned about where U.S. tax dollars are going, if we're concerned about outbound migration, let's stop sending money to a criminal regime in Central America. I did see a quote from Senator Tom Carper from Delaware. He's a senator, and he just was on a five-day delegation to the region in February, and he argued that the funding might take years or decades to realize changes, but that it'll be worth it. And he compared it to turning an aircraft carrier. You can, if you stay with it, you can change course. And he cites Colombia as a good example of that, where uh, you know it took the U.S. 
15, 16 years of funding, and uh, people were wondering during all that time, is this a really smart use of our money? And Carper says, well, it turns out that it was. And so he cites Columbia as a good example here. Yeah. So is he talking about the same Columbia where there's been about 250 assassinations of opposition activists just over the last year alone? Or is he is he talking about the Columbia where they're continuing to murder people that are trying to unionize there? Uh, or or is he talking about the Columbia that is being the image that's being sold of this transition peaceful Columbia? No, there's no transition. There's no peace that's taking place. What's happening is that there's now just a one sided war against people who are fighting for the protection of human rights, and that's the same direction. It's not that they're they're not trying to turn the ship. That's the point. It's not oh we're trying we're trying we're trying. No, it's the ship is going the direction that U.S. corporations want it to go. It's going in the direction of continued U.S. hegemony in the region. It's going in the direction of continued uh, maximizing of profits for corporate interests down there. It's going in the direction of continued maintenance of of U.S. uh, geopolitical interests in the region. And the more we continue to fuel that ship, the further in that direction it's going to go and the further the natural consequence of that process is going to occur, which is these caravans of tens of thousands of people. They might be turned into hundreds of thousands. Who knows at some point who are forced to flee their homes, who have no other choice. And if I could just just tell one story of a family that I'm in direct contact with who is from Berta's organization, Copin, an indigenous organization from a rural community and tried everything they could to be able to stay in their community. The last thing they wanted to do is leave land that has, they've been on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and generations. But they were getting so many death threats at every turn where they turned, even when they moved villages to try to escape them. Uh, they went to the U.S. Embassy and said, please, can you help us locate ourselves anywhere? Help us go through this in the right way. Your presidents always say you want regular, not irregular migration. And doors were slammed and doors were closed. And they finally traveled 2,000 miles to the border and two days ago swam across with a 13-year-old child in their midst that river. I haven't heard from them in three days. I don't know what's happened to them. And that's just one story of the thousands and thousands of stories that will continue to have this happen as long as we are financing assassins and brutal dictators who are unelected and illegitimate. Matt Ginsburg Jekyll is an interpreter and a community organizer. He works with the Chicago-based group La Voz de los de Abajo. Thanks a lot for joining us, Matt, and talking about the situation in Honduras. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have Milo Stalik, our film contributor, and he'll have a conversation with film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Jonathan Rosenbaum is a renowned film critic and historian. The legendary former Chicago Reader film critic has published a new two-volume set on the history and importance of film criticism, looking at major film movements like Italian neorealism and French New Wave. WBEZ's film contributor Milo Stalik sat down with Rosenbaum for a series of discussions on transformative film movements. And in this first segment, Milo Stalik and Jonathan Rosenbaum discussed the French New Wave and some of the epic people involved in that. Here's Milo. 
Jonathan, what is the French New Wave? Well, the term La Nouvelle Vague was created in French journalism, the magazine L'Express, and it just represented originally a youth movement, and then it got transferred to film. And what it began to be referred to is a lot of independent-minded, low-budget French films that came out. And it was originally not just, you know, like film critics for Cahiers de Cinema who became filmmakers, but a few other people, although the other people are less thought of in those terms now. It was basically a group of, let's say, not all film critics, but cinephiles who made films in France and which were considered very exciting. Films like Breathless and Hiroshima Mon Amour and uh, The 400 Blows, to speak to some of the first films, Paris Belongs to Us by Rivette. And this quickly became picked up and influential on a lot of American filmmakers who basically changed it into something else. The New Wave was a group of films, but it was also a group of critics who became filmmakers, therefore a critical intelligence. So the French New Wave is what brought us the idea that Alfred Hitchcock is an artist. So scholarship, film scholarship was a big part of it because yes. it was history, that we rediscovering history, bringing people who had been neglected even, especially within the studio system, looking at them in a, in a new wave critically. And also a particular idea of putting it all on an equal plane of old films with the present, that that came from Henri Langlois because the idea in Henri Langlois was that you could have, in a sense, a kind of dialogue between Kinji Mizuguchi and Otto Preminger because their films would be shown back to back at the Cinematheque. <laughs> and, uh, and that was the way that these filmmakers were discussed in Cahiers de Cinema. And of course, this had never happened before in criticism. And it came directly because of the what seemed helter-skelter, but which is actually very principled form of programming by Langlois at the Cinematheque. And what's interesting is, is that the time period is actually very short, right? I mean, because it's 10 years, basically, more or less... The, the heart of the French New Wave? Yes. I think it was at least in the fact they were conceived of as a group. You know, it was just like the Beatles were a right. group or the Italian New Realists were a group and, and so on. Yeah. I mean, obviously, many of them kept making and are still making films. Well, and as you said before, I mean, the large effect also was this whole concept of authorship, right? That yeah. the filmmaker was the auteur. He was not just a body for hire, I mean, who, who would be the director owned by the studio system with the studio system making all the decisions, and that there was that artist reclaiming the artistry yes. and, and reclaiming it for the filmmaker. Well, I mean, film was considered an art form in France, at least since the 20s. In America, it only started in the 60s. Although apparently in Hungary, it started before the 20s. I'm told, mm. That's where I'm told that film was considered an art in Hungary before it was considered an art in France. So, Jonathan, in looking at your two new books, Cinematic Encounters, Interviews and Dialogues, Portraits and Polemics, quite eclectic books, cover a lot of different kind of filmmakers, a lot of different kind of ground. So I was trying to find threads in it. And one of the threads that I thought was quite prominent was French cinema. And the one thing that really surprised me, knowing something about your work and your body of work, was your encounter with Alain René. Not a filmmaker that I would have really expected you to be the first champion of. I mean, I know Godard, obviously, your long association with this. Yes. How did uh, René factor into this for you? 
I would say that it was my first encounters when I was the last years of high school and beginning of college with, you know, Hiroshima Monomore and last year at Marienbad. But it became renewed by other films later. I mean, I can't say that I like all of his films. Mm -hmm. There are some I, you know, even have feel like I have an allergy to. But what sort of amazed me, well, many things. Part of it has to do with his grace as an editor, but also the fact that he reinvented himself with every film. It seems to me that that's true of some of the greatest of filmmakers. I think it's true of Carl Dreyer. I mean, it's true even more of René than it is of Godard in the sense that it's almost as if he never made a film before and then he kind of like reinvents. And he experiments, too. experiments quite a bit to the degree that, you know, and that's why some of the films you could say are failures, but the enormous risks he takes, stylistic and formal. And I think that that becomes really interesting to me, although there's a kind of, of curious evolution because he started out, one might say, as the most international filmmaker in the world with Hiroshima Monomore, and he wound up as a kind of almost provincial French filmmaker where his works, you need to be French in order to appreciate them almost. Because you would never, you would have a hard time putting together the filmmaker of Hiroshima Monomore with the later films, which were comedies, musicals, very clever, kind of proverbial comedies in a way. Yes, but there's a great deal of formal interest, and he's not appreciated enough for this. He was not only a cinephile, but a cinephile who had a critical appreciation of directors, even though he didn't write as a critic. You could see the work of a critic in the films in a certain kind of way, a very particular kind of appreciation and knowledge of, you know, like cinema. And one thing that's not widely known, for example is that Alan René is the person who introduced André Bazin to Fritz Lang. That's interesting. You know, when he was still a teenager, he started showing him, he said, oh, you should look at these silent uh, German films. So, I mean, he was from the very beginning a kind of a real connoisseur of cinema, as well as some of the other arts, too, because, I mean, he certainly did remarkable things with the kind of composers he used for his scores, Well, for example, you know, lots of different things. His interest in comic books, his interest in in musicals, both stage musicals and Hollywood musicals. Well, and if you look at Hiroshima Monomore today, I mean, very early film, right, or or especially Mariam, but they are as experimental today as they were 60 years ago when they were made. Yes. When I say he reinvented himself, this was something he did from a commercial standpoint, you know, which is something also that Orson Welles did. And, you know, they both suffered commercially because of it. If you look at the projects of Rene and Welles, there's an extraordinary number of fascinating films that never got made, which sound like they would have been as interesting or in some cases even more interesting than the ones that did get made. And that's because he followed the thing of reinventing himself and not going back to former successes and repeating them, except for maybe going back to uh, Alan Akeport, but I don't know if that qualifies. You know, there's some repetition, obviously, but at the same time, there's a real spirit of adventure and discovery that goes on in these films. Well, you you encounter the French New Wave as a young man, and it seems to me that now, 60 years later, the perception that we have of the French New Wave, first of all, is highly selective, what we know and what we don't know. Yes. And 
how comprehensive it is because also a huge number of people who were big players relatively in the French New Wave but were not big names like Godard Truffaut have basically vanished from our consciousness. Well, one thing that's very striking about René is that his shorts are not better known, and in some ways his shorts are as impressive as his features. You know, his first major short, which is also the first major film of Chris Marker, Statues Also Die, and it's still not available commercially with English subtitles. You know, it's kind of extraordinary, and this is a film that was banned by the French government for years and years because of its attacks on racism. And I mean, it's very, very timely and contemporary. And this is a film made, what, 1953? Long before anybody even thought of there being a French new wave. And then he had trouble later with Muriel, with the portrait of Algerian wars, factoring as a background. So the early films were also quite political, had some political context. Yes, that's true. They were political And they were involved in an enormous amount of, um, well, I don't know, formal elaboration, even though he would take on, like, for example, his first cinemascope film, you know, is this color cinemascope film about a plastics factory, which, you know, he spent about a year on and is quite a dazzling film, but was rejected by the plastics factory. It wasn't the kind of thing they wanted, (laughs) you know. And, of course, many people believe, and I still believe, that in some ways, Night and Fog is the greatest film about the Holocaust. Even though he may have criticized, you know, uh, Landsman, you know, and Shoah, Shoah would not have been possible without Night and Fog. Night and Fog is a film that set the template for Shoah. Absolutely. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Yolis Stalik speaking with film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum, film critic historian, I should say also, film historian, film scholar, whose two new books are Cinematic Encounters, Interviews and Dialogues, and a second volume, Cinematic Encounters, Portraits and Polemics. Speaking of the people in the French New Wave who were are being neglected, I should say, one of the people that you cover in quite a bit of depth is Jackie Renau. Yes. Speak about Jackie Renault. Well, she's been a very dear friend for a long time. Mm. And she was a kind of person who brought Paris culture to New York in a rather exceptional way. I mean, she was the first American, you know, exhibitor who showed Godard's Numero Deux, Marguerite Duras' India Song. I mean, when they didn't have distributors even, she would, you know... Uh, she and her husband had a theater, two theaters. Two in, theaters, in, in fact, Ble- yeah, Baker the Blaker Street. Street Cinema and the Carnegie Hall uh-huh. Cinema. And she was also, you know, a filmmaker in her own right. And, you know, I was involved in her work in a lot of ways. I even acted in one of her films <laughs> and got to write my own dialogue. But she was also a brilliant editor, and that's... Yes. She worked as an editor for practically all of the New Wave directors, as well as Jean Renoir, you know, all sorts of important filmmakers, and still does a lot of things because she's divided between two cultures, American and culture and French culture. A lot of people don't even know that, for example, she did a really interesting and nice uh, documentary about Jonas Makis. You know, I interviewed Jonas at Anthology for it that's been shown on French television. And one of the filmmakers that you've been associated with for a long time and great champion of is Jacques Rivette. So yes, what, ma- what makes Rivette so special and so unique? Well, I think it was a lot to do with a particular way of focusing on actors, focusing on duration. Time. Yeah, time, yeah. you could say, time. 
but also different kinds and levels of improvisation. I mean, it worked in different ways. Because Celine and Julie, which is around the time that you talked to him in your book, yes. is a film that was largely improvisational. Well, not as much as Out One, which was really almost all improvisation in the relationship to dialogue and the actors and the scenes. Celine and Julie was only partially done that way. I was already very interested. I mean, I was lucky enough to have seen Paris Belongs to Us at its first American screening, uh, I think, at Cinema One. I was uh, one of the last members of Cinema One in New York, Amos Vogel's great cine club. Right. Uh, and in fact, the two films I saw when I was a freshman at NYU were Paris Belongs to Us and Pickpocket. And the films are quite episodic, and there's a great sense of play in many of Rivette's films. There's that. There's also the theme of uh, paranoia, which is, I think... Especially in Paris Belongs to Us. Yes, but it's also there in Out One and, uh, and in many of the other films. I have to say that as great as my interest is in Rivette, I much prefer the first half of his career, the first portion of his career. I don't know if you could say half that goes up through the mid-70s than I do to the latter portion. But I feel guilty about that because it's almost like when he was crazier, he made more interesting films. And then when he became more sane, his films became more conventional. And he did repeat himself. Right, 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 right. So what do you think made the French New Wave so special as a historical moment, let's put it the way, or historical period that really changed the face of cinema? Well, I think the most significant thing was an awareness of film history. That the filmmakers had. Yes, that the filmmakers had as critics or in the case of René, just as cinephiles, but was still a kind of critical intelligence. It was very different from when you have in American cinema... Peter Bogdanovich or Paul Schrader or Martin Scorsese and others, you know, like repeating favorite shots and favorite sequences because that's not a critical intelligence. You're not learning anything about the originals, whereas it seems to me that everything that was done, especially by Godard and Rivette, but also to a certain extent by Truffaut, were very particular critical appreciations. And, you know, a lot of my grounding in American cinema came from living in France myself in Paris from um, 1969 to 74 and going to the Cinémathèque, of course. And you have to realize that André Langlois was a person who was a critical programmer who largely created the French New Wave through screening the history of cinema, you know, to uh, the critics for Cahiers and, and others, you know. So it was the first real film movement, it seems to me, that of importance that grew out of that knowledge. That was film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum talking with WBEZ film contributor Milo Stalik. Rosenbaum's new book is Cinematic Encounters, Interviews, and Dialogues. We'll hear more from Jonathan Rosenbaum and Milo Stalik in the coming weeks. A quick news note related to the French New Wave. Agnes Varda, a leading light of the French New Wave, has died at 90. She directed such films as Cleo from 5 to 7 and Faces Places. Her latest just debuted last month at the Berlin Film Fest. It's called Varda by Agnes, once again, Agnes Varda, dead at 90. Coming up in the, after the break, we'll talk about weekend passport and let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. And I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time in this city on the weekend. And with us is our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi. He has a couple of suggestions for you. Good to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Where are we going first? Uh, We are first going through a tour of basically the Arab world and being an Arab-American. Silk Road Rising uh, Theater and Stage Left are collaborating on this. They're our usual friends. And there is a play that's being done, a one-man musical kind of an approach to theater called The Detour Guide. And uh, we have a director over here, uh, Anna Baha, who is going to tell us about a little bit about the play. Hey, Anna, how are you? Hello, I'm doing well, Jerome. Thank you so much for having us here. Tell us a little bit about Detour Guide. Well, Detour Guide is an alternate tour through the Middle East and Middle Eastern experience. Kareem Nagy, who is an amazing musician, came to Silk Road. Um, He'd been developing a piece over the past six years. And with Stage Left, Silk Road, Kareem and I were able to uh, flesh out some of the uh, story that Kareem wanted to tell um, beyond the stereotype, beyond the terrorist, beyond the fetish with this wonderful piece full of music and humor and story. And Kareem Nagy is here. Uh, great to see you, Kareem. And I understand you've, you're going to do a bit for us here? Absolutely. I'd love to play uh, the introduction to the play, if you don't mind. That would be great. Okay, great. <laughs> If I were hummus and you were a pita, I would spread myself all over you. Yet food is not all we can do. I am not Aladdin, Jafar, or Jasmine. These cartoons I have never been, and his real name is Ala Iddin. I can curse my leader, the beater. He beats me with his totalitarian hand, but I will never curse my land. Cairo, Beirut, Amman, Dubai, all these places you'd like to tour? My tuk-tuk will take you on a detour. Oh, tourists gathered your special. Not shoppers, backpackers, or retirees. No shorts, no sandals, no group selfies. You don't need a generic bus, tourist trap, or souvenirs. This detour will engage your fears and ears. I have a new itinerary. This tour has been rerouted and stereotypes will be refuted. Because the Arab could change their clothes, passport, or name, but our hairy arms remain the same. My name is Karim. It means generous, and survivor is what Nagy means, generously surviving false dreams. Because if I'm ever asked a question at a calm moment or gasping frantic, am I a person proud to be Arabic? Whether fashionable or totally hated, one day shouting mad bomber scary, one day sexy dancing, revolutionary, yes. Even when poor, yes. Even when wealthy, yes. Even at the height of any fame, yes even at the depth of any shame. Because we are not bombers, terror insurgents. We are not sultan sorcerers or a genie. We are not hummus, pita, falafel, or tahini. But maybe we made those and these two Arabs aren't perfect much of the time, but equally capable of acting divine. 22 countries attract eyes. An entire world observes how we act, but only we can decide what is fact. I am Arab even when American. You could buy hummus at any market, but you cannot pay me to forget. So for anyone who mistook us for a genie, a terrorist, or an appetizer, this rhythmic tour will make you wiser. Nobody wants to be ignorant. Everyone would love to learn more. So let's climb aboard and take this detour. Shukran.
Thank you, everyone. Wonderful. Yeah, there it is, the opening of Detour Guide. It's showing at the Silk Road Rising Theater Company through April 7th. And that's Kareem Nagy. And I, tell us something about yourself. Can you uh, tell us oh, a little thank bit you. where all this is coming from? <laughs> thank you. So my name is Kareem, and um, my parents and I are immigrants from Egypt. I identify as an Arab-American. The, the, the time of living in the United States made me like a pan-Arabist, really interested in knowing all, all the different countries around the Arab world. And uh, what I do in the Detour Guide is present things from all over the Arab world to help people, you know, demystify um, uh, things about our culture and things about our behavior and, and, and music especially. And I use music to help make the connection. It sounds like you had to digest all the Western ideas about your homeland while you were growing <laughs> up digesting what your homeland was. Absolutely right. Exactly. But, and there's even a line in, in the play about this that we Arabs are caught either trying to fulfill or deny the identity created by somebody else. And so this is, this is my goal is to use the arts, music, dance, uh, celebration, even humor to help um, foreground us and share our stories with people coming from our own hearts and our own experiences rather than a depiction made by somebody else. Wow, amazing. Uh, this is uh, so interesting for me. Obviously, this is a play that's a lot of fun, but it certainly has a message too. And I can really relate to it as an immigrant also uh, because half of the time the conversation when conversation starts with people who were born in this country is that I have to deprogram the misconceptions that they have about me as an Iranian American or a Middle Eastern or a Muslim and all of that and it seems like you had a lot of fun with talking <laughs> to there was a lot of conversations yes. that I have had and I was frustrated with right. I could have just had them come and see your play and it would have been taken care of one of the conclusions <laughs> is to have fun with it you know is exactly. to not always be offended and to be angry, but actually use it as a time to to uh, enliven people as well as as an opportunity. Yeah. Now, uh, presenting this as a one man show, Anna, there's a lot of um, visuals. There's uh, there's we have film an, and whatnot going on all at the same time that you're hearing this. What not only do we have uh, Kareem's wonderful music, we encounter through Kareem the different people he's met on his journey and his travels gathering music. And we have a gorgeous set, beautiful lights, video. We try and use all the tools to create uh, a world that you can step into. We invite the audience to be tourists uh, on this alternate uh, exploration. All right. It sounds like fun. Now, you, you've got a, um, a limited run through April 7th. This is April 7th, is it? Yes. So we have eight more performances tonight at 8, Saturday and Sunday, uh, this weekend and next weekend at 4, and this coming Monday and Tuesday. And we would love to have the Be Easy audience come out and support it. It is an alternate uh, worldview. <laughs> and there's a discount for WBEZ people if you go to the website at silkroadrising.org and use WBEZ for the next 48 hours. Yes. You get a discount. Yes, it is a two-for-one ticket deal. And you could go, and if you wanted to just use the telephone, 312-857-1234, extension 201. Is, uh, we'll get you the same thing. Yes. 
Well, that's really great. And uh, it sounds like this will be something you'll want to take um, take around in the future, Kareem. Oh, I would love to. The beautiful thing about working with the Silk Road is that their um, mission and my mission are completely compatible, and they made me an amazing set and uh, <laughs> helped me work with great designers. But I also would love to tour this and bring it to other cities as well. Sounds great. And uh, detour guide once again through April 7th at Silk Road Rising. Sounds fantastic. Um, we have another little piece we'd love to play for you if you have time. Sure. Let's hear it. Okay. So this is a song that is um, about Orientalism, and we call it a reorientalism, Oriental Magic Carpet, which is a satire. Magic carpet Among the Bedouin tribes The tales are told Sheikh Sultan's quest for The black gold We don't want their religion Only want their money Simultaneously dangerous And sexy Oriental carpet Makes for good decorage But it's not comfy For oriental massage Will Shahrazad Give me an exotic dance In Casablanca Alhambra or France Della Della Qua Qua Painted naked harem feast Of a, of a place South of Europe Yet labeled East Arabian Persian Indian Chinese Thai All close enough For a carpet to fly. The East goes from Morocco to Japan, but the West goes from Austria to Washington. Anything exotic is labeled the Orient, and most of the world lives in that nomad's tent. Oriental, Oriental magic carpet, magic carpet, magic carpet, magic carpet, magic carpet, poof. Bravo. <laughs> Kareem Nagy, and he's at uh, Silk Road Rising through April 7th in Detour Guide. Get your WBEZ discount with using the code WBEZ. Thanks a lot for joining us, and uh, good luck with the one-man show there. Nari, we're going somewhere else now. We're going somewhere close to you. Yes, we are going to take a tour of the Persianate world. And uh, wherever the Nowruz festival, the arrival of spring, is actually celebrated around the world. Iran, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Central Asia, north, uh, northern parts of India and South Asia, and even going into Kurdistan and, and Turkey. And uh, so it's a, lot, it's a global celebration of what's usually cast as an Iranian New Year uh, festival, but we're doing it. And because of the women of this region, particularly the women's movement of Iran, has been very active lately in uh, demanding its rights, we're kind of celebrating the creativity of the women of the region. That sounds great. And uh, now you're doing this uh, tomorrow, and uh, what time exactly? You've yeah, got a we're, do, we're doing time it. Span. We're starting at three o'clock uh, with the screening of a film about the history of Shiraz wine, and it's happening at 111 West Illinois Street on the WeWork, uh, WeWork building over there at uh, on Illinois on the fifth floor. There is a reception hall over there, and we'll be screening the film. We'll be serving Shiraz wine, and we're also cooking on the basis of cookbooks discovered from 
the Sasani dynasty, pre-Islamic Iran, will be cooking a meal and serving you a Nowruz meal if you buy a ticket to come to our event. Wow, that sounds terrific. And um, introduce us to your special guest. Uh, our, my special guest today here is Anahita Shams, a BBC Persian journalist who produced an amazing documentary about the history of Shiraz wine. People don't know that Iran has a 7,000-year history of uh, winemaking, and Anahita is the one that's really put that on the record in the media. Nice to meet you, Anahita. Hello, nice to meet you too. Thank you for having me here. Now, I was um, reading a, a written version of this on the BBC website that she did, a write-up that she did, and um, it, it sounds like um, there's so many other wines that have a name like Shiraz. It's Syrah. It's um, some places it is Shiraz and other places. So did it all come from Iran? Syrah is the French wine that French people, they call it Syrah. But the same grape and same wine in Australia, they call it Shiraz. Or here in California, they call it Shiraz as well. But let me tell you the story that Shiraz is the only name you can just find because it's a very unique name. And Shiraz is the only town in Iran and you cannot find anywhere else it calls Shiraz. And Shiraz actually has a very, very old history of winemaking because, you know, um, winemaking, tradition of winemaking in, in Iran will go back to so many years, like 7,000 years of, you know, winemaking in Iran. That's amazing. Now, I, I was reading that the oldest living wine pot is from Iran, and it was 7,000 years ago. Yes, in 1968, American archaeologists, they found this wine jar, which is massive jar, and now it sits in Penn Museum in Philadelphia. I was so lucky <laughs> to just go there, and I saw it, I touched it, and it was so amazing. And they found that this dark stain at the bottom of this jar is actually wine. So are the Persians the original winemakers? Is that what we can conclude from this? We cannot just say exactly if they are, but we found the oldest wine jar in Iran. We also have Emily Wines, who is, uh, is a master, one of the few master sommeliers uh, in the world, uh, uh, who uh, an, an expert on Shiraz White. She'll be on our panel tomorrow, and she's on the air with us, I believe, right now. Hey, Emily, how are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Good. Uh, Good. So uh, I, I was almost pinned down the origin of wine to Iran there for you. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, what, what is the real origin of wine? Who made the first stuff? Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly, but, but a, a lot of people have really kind of focused in on Georgia as actually being the cradle of wine. So not too far away. 7,000 years ago, though, pot of wine in Iran. It's amazing. Well, actually, actually, uh, Anahita's research shows that the Georgians probably had the Persians beat by about 300 years. Okay. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, they did. Yes. And I went so. to Georgia, actually, to uh, research more about it. And recently, they found another jar, which goes back like 7,600 years. So they are beating us. But I have to say that then, by then, there were no border between Iran and Georgia. So who can just say that it was Iran or Georgia now? Sounds great. Uh, Monica Eng is here, our WBEZ foodie type. <laughs> and uh, 
it, uh, you're going to be on the panel tomorrow? I am, basically just guiding the conversation with these, these lovely women about wine. Um, but I, I think my role here today is talking about um, how uh, Nowruz is celebrated in other parts of the Persian-influenced world. You spent a lot of time in Uzbekistan. I did. Uh, my my first husband was uh, an, uh, an anthropologist who actually you have on quite a bit, Russell Zanka. And so we lived in Central Asia. We lived on the Kyrgyz-Uzbek border for a year and a half. And for uh, just about a whole year, I, I just I was listening to kids because I always hang around kids when I live in another country because my uh, my language skills are so bad that I figure they won't make fun of me. So I heard them telling me about this. Oh, no ruse is coming. No ruse is coming, Monica. You just can't believe all the great food that's going to happen at No Ruse. So I was always hearing about this, and I especially heard about this thing called sumalak. Like, we're going to make sumalak, and it's going to be so delicious, and you are not going to believe just how great it is. And I'd always ask, what is this sumalak? What's it going to be like? And they said, it's this brown, and it's delicious, and all the women stay up all night stirring it in this enormous cauldron and, and the men stoke the fire and we sing songs and we dance and we tell stories. And in the morning, you're going to have the sumalak that's the best thing you have ever tasted in your life. So, you know, a year I'm hearing this and I'll ask you guys to pass around this thing that we won't say what it is yet. And um, so you hear Kind of looks it. like dog food. Well, okay. Thank you for the uh, description. Um, and, Got a little circle in it. And so the way you make this sumalak is on um, on March 20th, you stay up all night and you put a sprouted wheat, you put wheat flour, you put oil and water in a cauldron. You know, pretty simple ingredients. And you just stir and stir and stir. And then you make kibble? Well, Jerome, I'd like to ask you to put it in your mouth and you tell me what it tastes like. Well, everybody, everybody, crunch like down on the it. Dog food, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a cereal. It tastes like it's, cereal. It's crackling yeah. oat bran, and so in yeah. the morning, the, the entire village gathers round to watch the two Americans <laughs> with their beautiful piola, these beautiful ceramic bowls of sumalak. We take the first bite, and like. It's crackling oat bran in a pudding, <laughs> which I might say is very delicious, but it does not take um, 12 hours to make. But it yeah. certainly it doesn't have the same community feel and the same feeling of spring is here. We've got the sprouted wheat. We're going to bring the nutrients in. And right now, sprouted food is very, very hot because it reduces the phytic acid and the phytates in the, the grains, which releases more nutrients. And what do you need in springtime? Mm -hmm. Your body's been deprived of a lot of fresh food for a long time in traditional cultures. And so you need all those nutrients. And that's what I think these celebrations are all about, the first greens of the spring, the first nutrients to bring you back to life after a long winter, which is why some of the other foods are um, kok samsa, kok manti, kok tujvara. These are all different dumplings and turnovers with greens inside. And you guys were saying that you have the same thing, but you say kok kuku. We have kuku, yes. We just uh, cook it with lots of herbs, mix it lots of herbs and eggs and some salt and pepper. And it's one of the most delicious foods you can just, you know, have. Yeah, something taste. green has so finally popped up. Green mm -hmm. and refreshing. And we, we can't just have no rules without cooking. 
cuckoo. Yes. Uh, I'm wondering what Emily would recommend uh, to pair uh, with cuckoo. You know, it's made with eggs and, and seven herbs. It's almost like an herb quiche. I'm wondering yes. what, what she would ah, recommend. Ah, wow. Uh, you know, I like I like those first of the spring kinds of dishes. I like yeah. to do with wines that have really beautiful, bright, fresh acidity and lots of green flavors. Things like Grunewaldliner or Sauvignon Blanc are really great with those herbal flavors. That's great. That uh, sounds lovely. Uh, that, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm eager to see how the how the panel goes tomorrow now does that sound anything like what a no what your noru celebration is the uzbek uh, you have some anu which is like sumalak absolutely no i actually have had uh, interactions with uzbeks and what they do and and what's what's really funny is that uh, some of them believe that Nowruz is doesn't come from Persia or Iran. They thought it was an Islamic celebration. All the years of Stalinism, they actually they try to shift this, cut off the relationship with the old Persian Empire. And uh, and now there there is a whole process of rediscovery going on, reconnection between these countries, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and all these other uh, Iran, and even going into Kurdistan, Iraq, and Turkey. And uh, they're all found, finding a common heritage in all of this. And the role of creativity of women in all of these countries has also been underemphasized historically, and that all of that is being rediscovered. The Nowruz Global Festival is at, is at uh, 111 West Illinois Street tomorrow, and it starts at 3 with the movie about wine. Exactly. It starts at 3, uh, three, uh, three to 5, the movie about wine, the panel discussions with the ladies, and then we're going to have a presentation on the old Persian cuisine history, and then we're going to serve the food with wine. So it should be a fun evening, and I want to also thank, uh, apologize for the inconvenience of the changes of venue that we have had to have, uh, but I want to also thank Northeast Illinois University Mossadegh Initiative for helping us do this. Initially, we were going to do it at their event, but we've had to change things. But I want to thank them anyways for all the trouble I have put them through. <laughs> <laughs> well, it uh, sounds good. And Matteo Farzan, especially Dr. Matteo Farzan. <laughs> so if people want to just come, should they, they should just come tomorrow. At just come to the event tomorrow. And uh, actually, if they want, they can come and buy tickets over there or they can also go online with a Worldview discount. We're also going to do a two-for-one, just like our friend Anna Bahau did. So if you want to reserve it online, go on the Eventbrite page for the Global Nowruz Festival and just buy a ticket and you come and get the second admission uh, at the venue tomorrow. All right. You are the global fun this weekend. Right? <laughs> yeah, we're, the, the, the global, we're trying. <laughs> the Nowruz Global <laughs> Festival. Check it out. Uh, yeah. Thanks a lot, Nari Safavi. Thanks a lot, Monica Ng. Thanks a lot, Emily Wines. And it was great to meet you. Um, yeah, the, the Persian correspondent for the BBC, Amahita Shams. Thank you very much for joining us. I enjoyed reading and would love to see your film uh, about Shiraz wine. Sure. Come and join us tomorrow. Monday on Worldview, we're going to hear about the presidential election in Ukraine. There's two oligarchs and a comedian running neck and neck. The comedian seems to be winning, I think, in the polls. We'll see what happens Monday on Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.